0: Let's get to it. Product-Led Growth or PLG has become a significant go-to-market strategy for many organizations. But it isn't easy and many of today's tools are not purpose-built for PLG. So what can companies do to be successful with Product-Led Growth?
1: Salespeople often hate their CRM. Why? Because they are hard to use. Difficult to customize and expensive to maintain. This means leads and opportunities don't get updated, things get missed, and sales can suffer. Insightly is the modern CRM that teams love. Easy to use, flexible enough to support your unique needs, and scales with you as you grow. This helps you sell smarter, grow faster, and build lasting customer relationships. Insightly is trusted by more than a million users worldwide. For more information, visit insightly.com forward slash get insightly.
0: In this episode of the Revenue Engine podcast, Arjun Saxena, the CEO and founder at Humanic AI shares his insights on what PLG is, how to be successful with product-led growth, and how to bring together data, insights, and campaigns into one view to accelerate your revenue. So super excited to be here with Arjun Saxena. Did I say that right? Yes. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) The founder and CEO at Humanic AI. So for those of you who are not familiar, Humanic AI is the AI-powered CRM built for today's modern product-led growth companies that brings together data, insights, and campaigns into one powerful no-code solution. I love that no-code part. (laughs) So welcome, Arjun, and thank you so much for joining me. I am super excited to share your story and just learn from you.
1: Thank you, Rosalind, for inviting me on your podcast. Um, Super honored. Yeah, so brief background about me. I'm Arjun Saxena. I've had 20-odd years of product and engineering roles at Adobe, uh, Yahoo, Evernote, a couple of other startups. But most importantly, I was at um, Adobe Creative Cloud for a number of years building out. You know, most people don't realize that Creative Cloud is basically a big social network. We had, you know, close to 400 million Adobe IDs when I was there. And, uh, you know, we don't see it as such. Uh, And there was all this, uh, you know, understanding of what we can do with all this data. So I stood up uh, the first sort of personalization um, to understand from data and, and how to get people to get more out of Photoshop and Illustrator and InDesign and, and you know all these other tools. And that sparked uh, you know, real idea that this product usage data or the user activity that people do is a mm-hmm. uh, leading indicator of revenue outcomes. So Uh, what people are doing in a PLG, product-led growth motion, eventually will translate into revenue. So several years later, um, you know, um, we started Humanic last year, uh, which loosely stands for human plus machine. So we're bringing in, you know, the data, the insights, and the human touch together to drive outcomes and unlock revenue um, you know, for people.
0: Awesome. Awesome. You know, I, you touched on this a little bit, but I mean, I think, you know, oftentimes like I, I interview a lot of founders, right. And CEOs on this show, on this podcast. And a lot of times they're, you know, they're faced with a problem or there was like a challenge they were trying to solve, or there's maybe some kind of aha moment, right. Or event that happens. And then they decide to start a company and sometimes it's by accident. Sometimes it's, you know, intentional, but what was the case with humanic? Like what led you to start the company?
1: Yeah. So, I think ever since I moved to the Bay Area, you know, after graduate school, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be start a company, which is sort of very typical of very many people who move to the Bay Area. <laughs> I was, you know, very early on, I had a professor at USC who introduced me to the world of, you know, startups and things, and I was always jazzed by this idea of being a founder. It took me longer to be become one uh, than I had initially you know, uh, just upon. But at a fundamental level, as a product manager in a large company, you know, you're, you execution is such a big problem that most product managers end up for the most time executing on things versus trying to do product market fit and, you know, strategy and things like that. The chances or the opportunities to do that is, you know, when you are in a larger setup are limited. And... Not everybody can, can be a chieftain, like most people need to execute. So over the years, um, you know, the, the way to do it in a, you know, in a free way was to have an idea that is big enough that you can execute on and be able to use, your, you know, my product and engineering um, sort of experience to do it the way without any sort of, you know, uh, guardrails to say you can't do that uh, type yeah. of thing. So that was that's the thing that, make, you know, um, excites me and keeps me going for for the last, you know, uh, several years that, you know, it is that that uh, the joy of creating something and not having any um, anybody outside of yourself and resources that, you know, puts a limit on that. I don't know if that makes
0: sense. Yeah, no, I love that. And it's funny because you said that you, you know, have always wanted to be a founder. I'm like the opposite where I've never wanted to be <laughs> like a <laughs> solopreneur or start my own business. But yeah, kind of found myself here. Um, you know, so let's talk about PLG a little bit, right? Because I mean, I think PLG or product led growth, it's becomes just such a common term, right? It's almost become like a buzzword, kind of like the AI, ML, like before. Um, but there's still, I think, some misunderstanding about, you know, what it means to be truly product-led. So, I mean, what does product-led, I guess, mean to you? And maybe from your perspective, what are some of the considerations that, you know, businesses should be thinking about to determine if PLG is right for them?
1: Yes, I think the number one thing that product, you know, in theory, product-led looks very straightforward, like it makes a lot of sense, but product-led is really hard. It's way harder to become product-led than it might seem in theory. So people look at Canva and Calendly and Slack, which is in a Dropbox, which are, you know, fantastic companies. And most of the people that today percolate as advisors come from, you know, Dropbox. They have like, you know, uh, they are the PayPal of the generation where, um, you know, Slack and Dropbox have created so many leaders around in this PLG space. But what most people they start out and what we see with our customers start to do PLG they very quickly are actually not doing PLG, and they have to hire salespeople and do the sales motion. So mm-hmm. there is so much on the product side that if you are, you know, not focused on the user and then building for the user, you end up, you know, defaulting to a sales-led motion. So mm-hmm. I, I see yeah. this dichotomy where people want to be PLG, but. Because it doesn't get as much traction as, as you think it will, you go go back to your sales led motion. You want it; it's aspirational over time, but most of your revenue is still coming from you know your sales led uh, motions. Um, so the uh, so I think it, it is uh, it it takes it requires a lot more tooling to be in place. It requires a lot of mindset. To be, yeah. and to be in place for people to believe in themselves longer to build that product, you know, without revenue and, and just have that confidence that it will happen. But it's such a strategic yeah. play that, you know, most people, I would say, lose that patience and default to what they know has worked, which is sales life.
0: Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. can
1: sell, they find people who they can sell to, personal connections and networks, and that's how they start building the product. True PLG is very hard. Like the way the Atlassian folks have done it is, you know, just out there. I don't know how you can do that uh, in today's market and have that patience to be at something for twenty years to have no salespeople, and then that's sort of you know the the holy grail of every PLG company.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, you know, I think about, you know, once an organization actually decides that PLG makes sense for their business, or maybe it's one area of the business, you know, right? maybe they have sales led and they still have product led, but some of the biggest gaps um, or maybe challenges that I keep seeing are, you know, related to a couple of things. One, you know, having the right indicators and sort of insights of that product usage data. Um, two, identifying and discovering, you know, users, and then prioritizing them, right? Kind of for next steps, like what to do with that. what what to do with them. And then three, you know, understanding sort of the when to engage, right? When to engage those users and then making sure that you're connecting and mapping those users to those accounts and existing customers as well in your CRM. So I want to tackle kind of maybe each of these, because I'd love to get your perspective on this. You know, first, I mean, product usage data, it's so valuable, right? But it's only valuable if you're leveraging it, the right, you know, leveraging the right data and, and looking at the right insights, so maybe what are you seeing organizations that, you know, what do they do right here? And maybe some of the yeah. things that they're doing wrong, you know, and do you have any advice maybe for how they can better leverage the product data that they're getting?
1: Yeah. So I think the way that we see it, that there are multiple tools for product and growth managers, like an Amplitude, Mixpanel, Heap, Google Analytics, and, you know, obviously Amplitude and um, Mixpanel Heap have been around for a while and they've built a huge, huge business, but they are more platform players and they were started about 10 years years ago maybe if Google Analytics been around for longer than that and they allow you to do a lot of things but it requires like um, you know a dedicated like cognitive load to do to understand and utilize these, some of these tools and then there are customer success tools like a vitally or a plan and and gainsight etc which is for paid customers and the gap that we see the white space opportunity is the revenue leaders or the go-to-market teams that have to today rely on either a product growth, data science person, or even a customer success person to get that product usage data. They, they don't have, there is no, today no process or a team that is attached to a revenue, revenue team to say, you need pr- user activity data, here it is. And there is no billion dollar tool today in the market where people can deploy it and say, you know, here is, you know, here's all the product usage data. Here's all the payment data. Now go make mm-hmm. sense of it. So I think that is the white space opportunity in the industry, uh, which mm-hmm. is which is there. So user activity data is in, you know, we, we see two leaps. There are larger companies, call them like, you know, over $20 million that have all these user activity data in a snowflake. Then they do reverse CTL, put it in, you know, some of these PLS tools that have come up. And that is, okay. you know, those are targeted um, for the the larger companies like the uh, Miro or, or, you know, some of these 20, 30 million plus companies. But there is a whole bunch of 5 million to 20 million ARR type companies that don't have the sophistication of having Snowflake and Reverse ETL mm-hmm. and, you know, instrumentation in place, um, all the billing data in Stripe because it's all fragmented. And for those mm-hmm. revenue teams, there's a real challenge to say, I know I need this, but there is no way to do that uh, today. Yeah. And that's so, you know, um, you have to sort of basically that's what humanic is building. This, what we call the small loop to say, if you're mm-hmm. five to 20 million ARR and you are in a PLG, you are a PLG company that is growing rapidly. You have 20, 30, 40, 100,000 users that are coming up. You put them all in a CRM like a HubSpot and Salesforce. You don't have any way of prioritizing who's actually doing what. What is their payment, yeah. and what is their user activity, and how will I, how do I see trends? Like how do I see this person is connected to the other person? Uh, mm-hmm. And that's why you know you need a, what we call a ramp to a HubSpot or a staging CRM or a PLG CRM that is mm-hmm. built to say put your hundred thousand users that are coming in from user activity in a humanic tool and you use your CRM for upsell. In a PLG motion, revenue teams use a CRM for upsell motions where you're doing six, seven-figure deals with, you know, you get Boeing or something, and you, you can't sell them on, on self surf But for everybody yeah. else, you need a way, and that's the gap in the industry. Uh, that there, is, <laughs> a, there isn't a CRM that is built, purpose-built, that is data-first, uh, like, you know, HubSpot and Salesforce or everything else that they do, they're not data-first. Uh, there is no way to connect Stripe or Segment or any of these tools natively unless you have three people trying to do that for you, at which point, you know, you might as well use use a vendor versus hiring three people to uh, reconfigure sales for HubSpot. Yeah,
0: yeah, I love that. And I think that kind of feeds into, you know, my next questions really around that PLG motion. You know, we have understanding the people, right? Because many users, like, I mean, I do this all the time. I sign up for something on a website and then I don't ever use it. (laughs) Or, you know, or they sign up and then they don't use the product like in a very meaningful way, right? Or perhaps, you know, sometimes they're not the right persona for your product for kind of for a longer term revenue play, right? And so when it comes to understanding those users and those personas, in the product data, you know, I guess what recommendations maybe do you have for how organizations should be prioritizing these?
1: Yeah. So I think there are two two sort of, um, one, starting with, you know, your never converted users. One way that mm-hmm. every PLG company that is growing rapidly can unlock revenue is that they can, they, they today most companies don't have a process for never converted users. Like people like yeah. you- or me, who everybody's logging into all these sites every day. You're creating all these accounts. And typically what we have seen, that there is 10x more never-converted users that tried your product than your active users. So if you have 20,000 active users, you probably have 200,000 people that started a trial, but they never did anything. And these Mm -hmm. 200,000 people, people don't have a process tool or anything that they're doing for them. And out of these 20,000, these are you what know, we would call win-back campaigns. If you can even mm-hmm. identify on a regular basis, a monthly basis, 5% or 10% that, try, like say, they try to make a payment and the payment failed. Or mm-hmm. they did a bunch of you know, activity that, get, you, know, that you, you, you consider as vital. You can set up marketing automation for these never-converted users and start to bring 5 10% people every month. Uh, and that is something that I would encourage every sort of uh, PLG company that has that, that kind of you know, 10x multiple to look into because that's what they are looking into. The other thing is yeah. the onboarding on the PLG side and many times is not, it, it's, it's not triggered based on uh, user activity. It's um, timed. So somebody joins in and everybody who logs into a system, they, they, if they really don't want to, they don't want to be receiving emails forever.
0: <laughs> and mm-hmm. they
1: want to unsubscribe? So it is yeah. much better for you to less is more. Like if I if I log in and I don't receive emails, I remember that company. I'm like they did not send. Me <laughs>
0: all this yeah,
1: junk that I had to, you know unsubscribe in you know various ways. So the other thing is on the onboarding side, make sure that you have more of these triggered user activity based. You know when somebody does something, then send them something versus saying I'm going to bombard you. You know that era of saying. I'm going to blast you with all this and I'm going to convert some of this. That is gone. Like, no, you get no responses from, you know, bombarding Mm -hmm. people again and again um, with different things. You have to be very uh, personalized. You have to really show that you care uh, as a as a PLG company, because that's the whole thing. If you care, people will come back. If you if you, you know, try and maximize your stuff, then you're going against what product-led is about. It's, it's you know, sales-led.
0: Yeah, 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 that's great. I think that actually kind of talks, you kind of talked about a little bit already, but, you know, I think about like a lot of the companies that I've worked for, you know, kind of knowing that like when and how to engage, right? Those product users is that key to revenue, right? Either converting a freemium to paid or maybe converting from a consumption base to a committed revenue, you know, contract or even like you mentioned, upselling, right? To an existing customer because you want to make that process as frictionless as possible, right? And and also for the marketing and sales teams, right? Having that right data available to them is Mm -hmm. so critical to kind of understand when and how, right? Yeah, I think the revenue
1: leaders have been, the go-to-market teams have been second-class citizens for the last 10 years (laughs) of tools like a snowflake or an amplitude or something else. Like they are the last people that have any priority to get get the data. It's like the product people have first dibs on whatever they want to do with the data, Mm -hmm. which is great. Uh, and there's a bunch of tools uh, that they can use, like an iterable or an intercom that's connected. But mm-hmm. the same thing, like we need to make the go-to-market leaders first-class citizens of user activity data. And that's what Humanic is about.
0: Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about Humanic. Um, you know, so what are some of the benefits that you see, you know, of having this kind of purpose-built CRM, right, for PLG companies? And then maybe how does that make it different, right, from these other CRMs that people are commonly use?
1: Absolutely. So the number one thing that a go-to-market or PLG company needs to prioritize things. Uh, uh, so one big difference is that when a, when a company is like 2 to 40, two to 50 range, they buy a CRM, like a HubSpot. Mm-hmm. Typically, they'll have HubSpot, MailChimp, uh, maybe an intercom. And they buy the CRM in the hope that they will that will supercharge the growth, but they don't use it enough. Because the, yeah. the default is that Stripe becomes, like if they have PLG and payments, Stripe is the default in the U.S. where that will become your default CRM. You'll know your monthly, your annuals, your refunds, your mm-hmm. forecasting. Everything is from Stripe. And then you know, like very few people log into Stripe for this kind of information, especially not on the revenue side. So there is, there is a CRM. Nothing changes in that CRM until you go change something. So if you are two yeah. or three people and you are you know meeting daily on Slack and whatever, you know I didn't put anything in CRM. So I'm not gonna check it because it's not, <laughs> it's not, it's not up to date. Like we've had 15 other conversations. So yeah. more I think 70 to 80 percent of the teams, unless there is like a gun to their head or is a discipline enforced by a sales leader, stop using CRM after some time till they become much bigger and they need all of this coordination in an organized way. So when you're starting up, your Stripe is your default CRM and then Segment, which is your user activity data, is the other place uh, where you have this information. The first thing you need is you need to combine the payment data with the user activity data. So you need to see if somebody has been paying you for a while and they are in the lowest quadrant of usage, Mm
0: -hmm. no matter
1: what company you are in, that is a problem. Right? whether you put it in snowflake and do all these other things the number one thing you need to know somebody's been paying us for a while they aren't using the product right yeah so I think it's that simplicity that we are focused on to say if you have 10 20 30,000 users the number one thing you need to identify is this who's paying you a bunch of money isn't using the product who's mm-hmm. paid you a bunch but you know who's just starting paying you but they are crazy users. Those are your evangelists, right? You can upsell to them. So before we apply machine learning and all this rocket science that we have, um, Mm -hmm. that's the framing that you need in that early stage PLG motion where you're 5 to 20 million ERR. You have some product, you have some users, Mm -hmm. but you need a system where it's updating on your own. Every time you log into Humanic, things would have changed because your Stripe, it's telling you new people have joined, new people have, you know, some people have churned, you have that mm-hmm. data. So that becomes, you know, that becomes your uh, uh, go-to place to find relevant, you know, what, if you did a marketing automation, how did it impact you? It impacted mm-hmm. you because there was some subscriber movement that happened. And and like I said, it it requires strategic product focus to remain true to being PLG.
0: Uh, mm-hmm.
1: And and even if you have a parallel sales motion, like once you reach a limit or you have that, you are going to continue to invest like you were saying earlier before our podcast started. Like PLG is here to stay. So even if you are HubSpot or a Salesforce and you have like hundreds and thousands of salespeople, you still have people, small companies, you know, that are coming in and joining Salesforce. So yeah. you always will need a purpose built PLG CRM even if you're a larger company. But the problem is exacerbated for smaller companies because their revenue teams need to unlock revenue month-on-month, quarter-on-quarter, but mm-hmm. they just don't have any way of accessing data that that it, they already have. They have yeah. this data, but yeah. they, they don't have a way to access it on a daily basis and make outbound or marketing automation optimizations Based on that live data. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, that's completely. And that resonates so much with me. Even though we're just doing audio, you can see me like nodding and <laughs> nodding because it resonates so much. I mean, I see a problem with that in my past life as a practitioner, right? Kind of being on the opposite side, supporting the revenue team.
1: Yeah. Sorry, I'll add more to it. So, yeah. this is a, a dysfunction that exists even in larger companies. You may imagine mm-hmm. that there is a, you know, $100 million company that has all this sorted out. And mm-hmm. The big thing about marketing has always been that this will be a big, huge loop, like all this data will come into this platform. And, you know, we used to do that at Adobe. (laughs) Adobe is a marketing cloud company. They are one of the biggest players and they send a billion emails a year. And everything is supposed to be all this, you know, grand vision to say it's seamless, it's beautiful. But as you and I know and everybody listening knows that's not the truth.
0: Yeah, it's so just not the case. Even if
1: you are, even if you have Snowflake and you have reverse ETL and you have amplitude data coming in, and you want to create this big PLS machine, mm-hmm. chances are it's it's the right data isn't coming in. It's not. It's breaking. It's not live. It's not true. So our yeah. focus at Humana is to say Stripe is hundred percent accurate all the time. When you have a subscriber, mm-hmm. you got they got to pay you. Stripe works segment works. Let's put mm-hmm. that together first. Make sure that you are, even if you're in a larger company, if you have these, these tools available to you, let's get you that information first. Before yeah. we boil the ocean and say, let's put snowflake and let's do this real time, which, as you know, if a hundred people are involved in putting that stack together, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> there are a hundred ways to fail and a hundred ways you don't trust the data. The issue yeah. is also today that once the system becomes so big it people don't trust people won't make outbound calls or reach out to their customers if they if they even you know if they detect like this may not be true and most Mm -hmm. people when they look at charts and graphs they believe that they will not believe it till they cross question five times before calling a customer so <laughs> yeah. I think the bigger, bigger loop, the larger loop that some of our other players in the PLS space are focused on have those challenges around trust and things. Um so we are focused on this: like this is live data, this is true data, this is what the company is running on. And we are making guru market teams, modern revenue teams, first-class citizens of this data.
0: Yeah.
1: That's I our love focus. That. That's sort of act one, and then you know we'll we'll see about active and everything else
0: yeah <laughs> yeah no i love that i mean that's already a huge problem to solve and it's definitely a big gap i think at least from my perspective that i've seen in the market just with companies that i work with as well as being you know an employee and, and, you know a lot
1: of, of people the other difference between us and many of the you know folks around us is that most of the other pls companies use crm like a salesforce as a source of truth They pull from Salesforce, they do whatever magic and put it back into Salesforce. Now, our fundamental assumption is that in our ICP, five to 20 million, the CRM is not your source of truth. It has got so much garbage that there is an industry about cleaning up CRMs and the companies that come in and make hundreds of thousands of dollars just cleaning up your CRM. Because when you start, you put so much crap into that that yeah. <laughs> by the time you have 20 people in the company, you don't know what is what is right and what is a lead and what is not a lead. Yes. So that is something that is, you know, we we don't we don't we push into a CRM like anything that is of value, but mm-hmm. we don't clutter CRMs with more with you know raw leads unless they are processed. So that's another yeah. sort of fundamental difference that we see with our competitors as to, you know. Where the problem is. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love that. I love that. I definitely, definitely resonates with me. <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, when I think about the revenue engine podcast, right, I'm always hoping that others are going to learn how to accelerate revenue growth, power the revenue engine. And, you know, as a, as a, you know, two time founder, I think multi time, multi time founder, you know, are there things that maybe you wish you knew earlier or maybe that you might do differently if you could, you know, kind of hit the reset button and do it again? Um, I
1: think the biggest thing is that when I was starting out, I always expected, you know, somebody like I had this vision that I'd find some mentor, some advisor who will sort of tell me how things work. And so it'll accelerate my path. And, you know, a lot of people look, go to entrepreneurship schools at Harvard and Stanford and other places. But the best advice I've figured out, I think it was from uh, some Twitter post, is like, go do your first shitty startup there is nowhere to learn by reading books and things uh, and you know theory because it's a practical thing yeah. you have to be able yeah. to hire people based on your yourself and you know where i've got to is you know i've got to a point where i've where i i know that i can figure out anything that i set my mind to and once yeah. you have that belief that you can figure out how to get to the next level you will mm-hmm. keep figuring it out. So if I knew this like years ago that I can figure this out without mm-hmm. waiting and asking and reading and going to school, uh,
0: I would be further ahead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. That's great advice. Because a lot of times, I think when I ask for that, you know, a lot of times people say, okay, they wish they had, you know, sought out more mentorship or more advisory type work or looked at other people who have done it before. But I love that just kind of believing and trusting in yourself, right? And just pushing That's the yourself. Most, the
1: mindset yes. that you have, and then belief that you can figure it out. Like, you figure yeah. out, we all have figured out so many things in our personal lives. And, yeah. you know, with kids, yeah. if you have raising kids, like, there's every day, you're like, <laughs> how the hell do I fix this?
0: <laughs> so I definitely can, know that pain. <laughs> so If you
1: can think from first principles and, you know, figure out how to guide your child without, like, you know, after the first, like, when you have a child, you have, you don't ask for advice. Like, there's nobody, because it's so personal and it's so individual. Yeah. Uh, starting a company is very similar. It's so personal. It's so individual that. Nobody can give you advice that translates exactly um, to what you're trying to do. So the only thing you really have is the ability, the confidence to say, I will figure this out. Yeah. And the more you do it, the more and the more you believe that you, can, you will figure this out. Um, you know, the the better it is for you. Yeah,
0: I love that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That's super helpful. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Um, But as we wrap up, before I let you go, um, I always ask two things. (laughs) One, you know, what is the thing about you that others would be surprised to learn? And two, what is the one thing that you really want everyone to know about you?
1: Tough questions. Uh, (laughs) What is something that... um,
0: that people might be surprised to learn about you. And it could be the same thing. I've had that a lot of times with guests where the surprised and the thing they really want people to know is the same. And if there isn't anything, you know, maybe is there something that, you know, maybe that you just want to leave people with?
1: Yeah, I think I already said that, um, like if you are, um, so one of the things that I'll leave people with, and this is a personal note, that there are, yeah. um, you know, lots of, Um, lots of uh, support groups and things and, you know, for, um, you know, women and um, uh, sort of other sort of underserved um, sort of founders and things. But one of the categories that doesn't get any sort of love overall is, you know, mid-career folks at large companies, you know, which is sort of what was my background, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, Lots of people in large companies have this aspiration to be founders or start their companies, but they never can let go because they have, you know, so many other priorities and and things. Uh, And they want to be armchair sort of entrepreneurs, uh, do it part time, get involved fractionally. My only thing is that if you have that desire that you want to be founder, it's all in. Like, yeah if you, you know, what they call burn the ships Mm -hmm. and and there's no going back. So it's almost a waste of time if you're a fractional entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're working for a large company like a Cisco or something and you ever had the desire, just do it. Like, don't be a fractional entrepreneur and um, think that, you know, you'll you'll get to a point and then you will ramp up. It will not happen Mm -hmm. unless you Mm -hmm. give it 100% for and stick to it.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that. Thank you. That is great <laughs> advice. And I, I and I actually feel the same way. I do think that, you know, a lot of people, we kind of try to build something on the side and, and then you could be successful. It's not that you can't. It's just that I think sometimes if you really want to um, build while you're, you know, if you really want to build, sometimes you have to just, you know, you have to just, you have to dedicate yourself to it. I,
1: I have actually, I would I, I, I'm I'm saying the opposite thing. Like, if you're a fractional entrepreneur, it will not go anywhere.
0: Yeah. 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 Exactly. Like, I think it's just you, you just, you just you have, have to go cut the in. cord,
1: and there, has, there is no rationale for cutting the cord. Nothing can explain <laughs> why you cut the cord. You just feel right. Like, you know, it's like skiing. You're top of the mountain or like a bungee jump. You're top of the bungee, and you, you just, just jump. You just
0: got to do it. <laughs> yeah. You just got to do so it.
1: That, so well, that would be my role. Like, A lot of people ask me why I'm doing what I'm doing. And yeah. I get up at four o'clock, do whatever else. It's just, it just feels right. And uh, that's yeah. it.
0: That's awesome. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And thank you for being a guest on the podcast. Really appreciate just your time and your insights. I think there's a lot of great learnings here and great advice as well around being an entrepreneur. So thank you.
1: <laughs> thank you very much for having me, Rosalind.